0: Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop update on the treatment of bladder cancer. Um, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network and also a number of other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration. And you're interested in the topic. We have over 431 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, India, Taiwan, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call, actually, and it's a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, today's program is supported by EMD Serrano, a grant from Genentech, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program and also for their collaboration in making today's program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, the best, and I have to say I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Pramender Singh. Dr. Singh is... Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology-Oncology, Department of Medicine, Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Singh will be addressing an overview of bladder cancer, standard of care, the role of diagnostic technologies in precision medicine, and targeted treatments. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Singh. Uh,
2: Thank you, Carolyn. I thank um, uh, Cancer Care and also Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network to organize this teleconference for the benefit of patients and their caregivers. Um, I'll be presenting, as Carolyn said, the overview of bladder cancer and standard of care treatment options and role of diagnostic technologies, and we'll be answering questions at the end of uh, at Q&A sessions. So my goal here is to talk about these aspects of bladder cancer in a very simplistic term so that people from all backgrounds can understand and I will not try to achieve accuracy or complexity with which we present at scientific meetings. Uh, With that, we'll start some uh, information about bladder cancer background. It is considered one of the commonest malignancies involving the urinary system, with over 75,000 new patients diagnosed every year. Um, But most of these patients are at early stage um, and are treated by urologists. Urothelial carcinoma, also known as transitional cell carcinoma, is the predominant histologic type, which basically means how the cancer looks under the microscope in both U.S. and Europe. This cancer essentially arises from the skin of the bladder, which is counterintuitive. The skin of the bladder is inside the bladder, which is exposed to the urine. and and surprisingly, uh, for many, many of my patients, they are surprised when they hear that that skin is same and it continues up through the ureters, which are the tubes which bring the urine down from the kidney, up to the center of the kidney. And it goes down towards the urethra to a certain extent. And so this type of cancer can arise up from the kidney down to some portion of the urethra, and that all is treated similarly as bladder cancer. This cancer usually present with blood in urine, which is called hematuria. This hematuria can be intermittent, it can be gross, it is usually painless, um, and and can present throughout the process of uh, micturition. Although malignancy is uh, not a common cause of hematuria, so usually physicians or treating family physicians will rule out other common causes of infect- like infection before sending their patients to urologist for a full urologic evaluation. Once the patient is seen by a urologist, uh, they may undergo a cystourethroscopy, which basically means putting a camera through the urethra into the bladder, a checking urine cytology, which is looking for cancer cells in the urine, and in the same process, evo- evaluation of the upper tracts, which refers to the ureters and the kidney pelvis. As I said, the skin is same up from the kidney, pelvis, down to the urethra, and we know that this cancer can occur in multifocal areas, which means at multiple spots at the same time. Um, And so after this, the patients may be advised to undergo some form of imaging, which is usually a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis with a urography with oral or IV contrast. Patients who are allergic to contrast may even get an MRI. Um, but initially, in pre- previously, we used to perform an IVP, which is also called as intravenous pyelogram, which is now more or less replaced by a CT scan. PET scans um, have limited value uh, and does not have an established role in patients with localized bladder cancer. And why is that is because of the excretion of the PET contrast in the urine and collect, it collects in the bladder, and so the bladder is very bright on that scan, so it's difficult to make an evaluation. But they may, PET scans may have a larger role in detecting uh, disseminated disease in patients who have locally advanced disease. So let's go on to the staging. Um, staging uh, for bladder cancer is broadly divided into three categories. The first stage, which is referred to as the non-muscle invasive... uh, or the first category, which is referred to as non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, which is the cancer arising from the skin of the bladder and not reaching the deep muscle of the bladder. In technical terms, this stage is referred to as either stage 0 or stage 1. The second category is the cancer when is called muscle invasive bladder cancer which is cancer arising from the skin and is advanced enough that it is deep deep into the muscle or invading through the muscle to the outside of the bladder and in technical terms it is referred to as stage 2 or stage 3 the last category is the metastatic disease or we technical terms we call stage 4 where the cancer has spread from the bladder to the other parts of the body or the neighboring lymph nodes. The bladder cancer um, can also is also graded into high and low grades, which essentially reflects the pathologist's opinion by looking at the cancer cells under the microscope. The high-grade cancers, they appear more aggressive um, in their features, and they behave aggressive clinically Um, for patients. Looking at the risk factors for bladder cancer, bladder cancer we know is more common in men um, than women. Average age is around 69 years in the U.S. Smoking is considered to be an important risk factor. There are certain occupations which puts you at risk for bladder cancer, which include uh, people working in metal industry or paint industry, rubber, textile, leather industry is also at risk. Um, cement workers, miners, ex- excavating machine operators, um, and other industrial chemical exposure can put you at risk for bladder cancer. There is some uh, sm- uh, evidence from multiple epidemiologic studies that uh, there could be some genetic factors linked to bladder cancer, and there's a small risk increase in risk uh, of having developing bladder cancer in the relatives of those who have bladder cancer. Again, for the workup, when the patient presents to their physician, they are referred to a urologist. So essentially, urologist is the first physician who diagnoses uh, a patient with bladder cancer, and that is, as I said, done by a cystoscopy, which is checking the bladder and taking a biopsy of the mass which they are seeing in the bladder, there could be a mass or a suspicious lesion. And once the biopsy is confirmed, then the staging is done, as I said, with using CT scans. And once the staging is done, then the treatment plan is is made for the patient. And that's where the category, the stage category, which I mentioned above, comes into play. For patients who have non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, these patients can be managed by putting medicine inside their bladder, which is usually... Uh, Called BCG, which is uh, essentially a vaccine. It's in a form of immune therapy. The medicine is instilled inside the bladder, and is kept inside the bladder for some time before the patient um, urinates the medicine out. Most of the patients will respond to BCG therapy, uh, but then a third of the, the of the patients may have recurrence of their disease on subsequent follow-up. These patients can receive treatments, uh, further treatments with BCG, or they can have intravesical chemotherapy, which is chemotherapy instilled inside the bladder. But then most of these patients will end up requiring radical cystectomy, which is removal of their bladder, because the, this, this cancer then becomes a refractory to these treatments. These treatments cause irritative symptoms of the bladder and sometimes systemic flu-like symptoms, and some patients may have severe reactions, enough that we may call them the patients are not tolerating uh, intravesical therapy. And then the next option in those situations is radical cystectomy. There are certain clinical trials which are investigating newer form of immunotherapy in this space, um, which are available um, in the US and in uh, other countries, and patients are um, advised or uh, to explore those options. Also, if they don't want their bladder to be removed um, and are looking for alternative options, then once the cancer, if the st- if the staging suggests that the cancer has already invaded inside the muscle. It becomes a more serious stage of the cancer, and this stage cannot be managed by treating, putting medicine inside the bladder. This is one of the common questions I get in my clinic. Why can't we add medicine into the bladder and take care of this? Uh, The medicine may not penetrate deep enough to reach the whole extent of the tumor because the tumor is invading deeper into the muscle and maybe outside. And in this situation, we may require treatment given intravenously. And so broadly, when somebody gets diagnosed with muscle-invasive bladder cancer, which is localized, there are two intents uh, which we offer to the patient. One intent is that patient is agreeing to have their bladder removed. And the second intent is that patient is either not a good candidate for this surgery or they don't want their bladder removed. If the patient is agreeable to getting their bladder removed and they are a good surgical candidate, the standard of care treatment is to offer neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which means chemotherapy before surgery. Uh, This chemotherapy comprises either of a two-drug combination or a four-drug combination. Um, There is some debate whether these two combinations are same in efficacy, or a four drug is better, or two drug is better. Um, it, this debate is still ongoing, and there are clinical trials which are ongoing right now to find a definitive answer. As of now, in practice, it is the physician's choice. Uh, if the physician likes to use a four drug or a two drug, um, and these the patients will receive either three or four treatments of this combination and then proceed to radical cystectomy, which is removal of their bladder. I'm going to jump in with a small uh, precision medicine um, topic here because there are new tests now available which were approved recently which can help guide physicians to select patients who will respond to chemotherapy or not. But these tests are, re- are new, and we are still uh, evaluating their um, role in decision making, and it will take some time before they become uh, become accepted in the mainstream clinical use. Um, and this, so, as I said, the second intent in patient who are not agreeable for radical cystectomy, these patients can receive chemotherapy and radiation together. So in this way, give a small dose of chemotherapy, which is there are multiple options for that. And a radiation going somewhere from four to six weeks, and which helps in controlling the cancer in the bladder. When patients ask me which one is better, which one is, uh, it, there is pros and cons of both approach. In patients who are getting chemo radiation, the only thing I want them to understand is that the chemo radiation is a good treatment for bladder cancer, and it can treat your current cancer which you have in bladder right now but it cannot prevent you from getting a new bladder cancer in future. Whereas if you have your bladder removed, the chance of getting a new cancer in your bladder is not there. Uh, You can still have a recurrence from your previous cancer, but uh, for patients who have chemoradiation will require long-term follow-up with repeat cystoscopies and maybe biopsies to check for any recurrence of their cancer in their bladder. Um, there are new clinical trials coming, which are investigating immune therapy in combination with chemoradiation radiation to see if we can improve the effects of this treatment and may even reduce the chance of cancer coming back. But it, is, it will take some time for those trials to mature and then find us, give us data to see what the efficacy is. Um, patients then who have metastatic disease, which means the cancer has already spread out or, out of the bladder. Clearly, the role for surgery is limited. Uh, In these patients, we would rather use chemotherapy or immune therapy to control the cancer wherever it is, because chemotherapy will kill the cancer wherever it is in the body, and, uh, and or immune therapy will help your immune system fight the cancer. Some patients may respond to chemotherapy so well that they may become candidates for consolidative surgery to achieve complete remission. That happens rarely. Um, but essentially, um, systemic treatments is an option, and um, but chances of achieving remission or cure are very, very minimal with patients who have metastatic disease. Um, in terms of targeted treatments, um, at this time, bladder cancer doesn't have any targeted treatment approved by FDA. There are new clinical trials which are investigating a role of FGF pathway inhibitors, which are drugs targeting this specific pathway. Uh, there are certain patients in whom we see these mutations in their DNA of the cancer, and these patients are getting these new medications on clinical trials. And early results are promising, but it is to be seen if we can uh, if these drugs will eventually get approved in, in for bladder cancer. But for now. In terms of targeted treatments, we don't have any targeted options for bladder cancer. Um, with that, I'll close my session for um, for Carolyn to take over.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Singh. That was really outstanding and a wonderful introduction to the call and a really overview of the treatment of um, bladder cancer. So thank you. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Randy Swiss, and Dr. Swice is Instructor of Medicine, Section of Hematology, Oncology, the University of Chicago Medicine and Biological Sciences. And Dr. Swice is going to be addressing new treatment approaches and clinical trials, the emerging role of immunotherapy, predicting response to treatment, and communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure to turn this over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Swice.
3: Great, thank you, Carolyn. I appreciate the opportunity to to be on this call and discuss some of these uh topics today with with patients. I think it's a wonderful uh, format in which to, we can reach out to a lot of patients so i'd look forward to the q and a afterwards but um i'd like to talk and that was a great uh, segue from Dr. Singh, who really gave an excellent overview of the bladder cancer in general. Uh, and the and the treatments that are that are coming, um, you know, one of the topics that came up uh, in, in his his section was uh, clinical trials and things that we have available. So I really, um, you know, I want to first uh, take a moment to appreciate all of the patients that that participated in clinical trials. Some of the, really, all of the advances that we talk about today are, are came came about only because of the the contributions of patients who contributed by enrolling in clinical trials. And, and I don't. You can't really overstate that point. I do want to acknowledge all all those patients that generously participated and are currently participating in clinical trials. But because of these trials, I think if you have a diagnosis of bladder cancer today, uh, whether it be non-muscle invasive, uh, superficial, uh, muscle invasive, or even metastatic, uh, I think there's more hope than ever. And we have a lot of uh, new therapies that have been recently approved by the FDA as well as uh, new therapies coming, uh, we expect, in the next few years. Um, so, I do think it's important that patients to at least seek a second opinion when they have a diagnosis. That's an important thing I recommend to patients, even that come to my clinic if they have any doubts. Uh, but also to consider enrolling in a clinical trial if you're eligible, and uh, typically these trials allow for patients to receive the standard treatments they would be receiving anyway, but have an opportunity to maybe also receive a new therapy in addition to test whether it's actually going to improve outcomes. Uh, so I think it is a, a really important and and uh, the way we move the field forward. So immunotherapy has is a big topic, and I want to focus a lot of the time on that. Um, as Dr. Singh mentioned, BCG is actually a form of immunotherapy, and that's been around since the 1970s. So it's it's what's old has now become new again in a way. Uh, BCG is a vaccine therapy that's used in, in non-muscle invasive or superficial cancer, and that's been effective and still the standard of care to this day in that situation. Uh, however, what we've learned over the last few decades is that the cancers can actually uh, evade the immune response in cases where the tumor is refractory to BCG or even in which it's spread and uh patient is not eligible for BCG. Uh, the way that tumors can grow is by evading the immune response and and so, I first want to make a point that your immune system can actually recognize the cancer it It typically does, but why does the cancer keep growing and it's mostly because the immune system has figured out tricks to evade it and One of the most common pathways we've now learned uh as a way that the immune system is tricking is tricked by the cancer is through this p d one pathway. And so PD-1 is what I describe to patients as a naturally occurring uh, break on the immune system. So normally your immune system has, uh, to use the car analogy, brakes and gas pedals. And so when you have an infection or when the immune system is needed, it it can be turned on through these signals that are, uh, you know, analogous to to gas pedals in a car, except that there's multiple uh, signals. That. And then there's also multiple breaks, the so multiple signals that can uh, slow down the immune system. And so t- tumors can actually abnormally signal through the break uh, when they, they shouldn't. And so the immune system, while it can recognize these tumors, can uh, you find immune cells within the tumor, and, and but they're shut off. They're basically told to shut off by these, these break signals. And so these new drugs that have been recently approved, Beginning in 2016, basically work by cutting the brakes. So when you cut the brakes on the immune system, what happens is the immune cells uh, become reinvigorated. They can divide and grow and attack the tumor. And in the, in the patients with the best outcomes, oftentimes these responses uh, these can result in tumors getting smaller. And these responses can last. Uh, sometimes many years, with with, uh, with your immune system controlling the cancer. So it's a, a really a sea change in how we think about the management of cancer. And it's actually uh, these kind of therapies are actually approved in over 10 different cancer types now. So it's not only bladder cancer that's benefited, but it's uh, it's a new way of thinking about treating cancer compared to traditional therapies such as chemotherapy or even surgery or radiation. So these drugs were approved. Uh, five different agents were approved between 2016 and 2017, and they all essentially work on the same immune uh, immune uh, pathway that's slow, that's slowing down the anti-cancer immune response. Now, we know that they can work in many patients with metastatic disease, uh, but where the research field is going is sort of understanding uh, how do we now incorporate these. Into um, earlier stages, or can we combine them with chemotherapy uh, because chemotherapy while while we 're all excited about immunotherapy it's still chemotherapy is still effective in terms of um, reducing the burden of cancer, shrinking cancer, uh, and some patients can have actually remarkable responses to chemotherapy so some of the research questions that are ongoing in the field are how do we can we incorporate and get the best of both worlds, or do we give chemotherapy first or chemotherapy after immunotherapy? Those are questions that are currently being asked in clinical trials. The other um, aspect which um, is which was alluded to earlier with the targeted therapy. this is the concept of using sequencing of the tumor, which is being done more frequently now, and uh, there are many drugs now that target specific abnormal features of tumors, sort of personalizing the approach to patients. While this is still uh, mostly in the research phase in bladder cancer, there is some promise, and we're excited about it. But also, is there a possibility we can combine that new approach with immunotherapy as well? So I think the, the we know that immunotherapies can be effective by themselves, but uh, the, uh, the going forward, we really want to see if we can improve them in a greater percent so that they're effective in a greater percentage of patients perhaps by combining with a targeted therapy or combining with chemotherapy or even combining with radiation there's some evidence that radiation can also impact the immune response and enhance the immune response so these are where the field is going but in terms of practicalities of getting the treatment the the next obvious question is do they you know do they have toxicities do they have side effects and the, the, and in short, they do. The answer is yes, they do, for sure. Um, in general, we think they're a little easier to tolerate than chemotherapy, and a high percentage of patients will actually, in my clinic I see, have little to no significant side effects from these immunotherapies. Um, however, in, in a quarter or third of patients, up to a third might have some some mild side effects. And the way we think about side effects is, as I you know, I typically explain the the mechanism of action because it's important in contrast to chemotherapy to understand what to expect. And what I mean by that is if you imagine you're revving up the immune system, that's great to kill a cancer cell, but it may also be revved up in places where it shouldn't, so you can get inflammation in different organs in, in some cases. And so the most common things that we see are if you develop inflammation in the skin, that would manifest to the patient as developing a rash. And rashes can be anywhere from most commonly they're mild and treatable with topical steroid creams, but sometimes they can be severe. The other common place is in the the colon, in the gut. If you get inflammation there, then that would manifest to the patient as diarrhea or loose bowel movements. And lastly, uh, you know, in terms of the more common things we see, uh, we sometimes see inflammation in the lung, which can cause shortness of breath or um, coughing a dry cough that 's kind of persistent that 's new. The list goes on in terms of where inflammation can happen, and uh i don 't go down and explain every single possible organ in which it's uh it can happen, but I do always encourage patients to uh stay in touch, and we definitely want to know um you know any any symptoms that develop that are new. Uh, even if they you don't think they might be related to the drug or related to the cancer, it's always best to to really communicate with your healthcare team. Uh, this is important not only so that we know how to uh, because if we manage these side effects early, they're often completely treatable and, and they will reverse. But it's also important for doctors and to be aware of, of your quality of life and um, and sort of taking that into consideration when we're giving therapies. So in general, I, I you know i find it more useful rather than list a series of 50 different side effects um more as to uh, to encourage patients to to please call us whenever you feel anything unusual even if it seems minor to you uh that's what we're here for and that's what we want to be able to uh to help you get through and decide whether you know you need to hold the drug for a while or whether we need to in- introduce some other uh treatment for the cancer and for uh, potentially for the symptom so those are, you know, some of the, the, the major um, topics I wanted to cover today. I think there's a lot to cover in a short period of time, but I'm, I'm happy to answer questions during the Q&A session as well.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Swice. That was really outstanding as well and really very informative to our participants. And I think... That, um, so I will advise everybody to get your questions ready because we will soon be taking questions from all of you. And um, our next speaker um, is Ms. Diana Berden. Uh Ms. Burden is a dietitian um with the uh, Michael E. DeBakey um, VA Medical Center. And Ms. Um, Burden will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips, a very important area for all of you. And I'm now going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Burden.
4: Thank you, Carolyn, I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutritional concerns in the presence of bladder cancer. Nutrition and hydration are key to your tolerance to treatment. Um, They provide you energy to do the things you enjoy doing and help you feel well. A plant-based diet is most ideal for prevention, during treatment, and during survivorship. A plant-based diet translates into having about two-thirds of your plate come from a whole grain, fruit, vegetables, nuts, and seeds, for example, and the other third of your plate um, coming from a lean protein. Examples of lean protein are things like wild caught including cold water fish like halibut, salmon, tuna, sardines, um, poultry, and beans. It's actually really good to bring in um, a complete plant-based meal every now and then and using beans as your protein. Plant-based foods um, are unique. They provide us um, important components such as antioxidants and phytochemicals. And when you select your plant-based foods, fresh or frozen are the best forms. Um, I like frozen. You can um, stock up a variety of different options. Um, the frozen form is actually allowed to completely ripen on the vine before harvest. Um, it's flash frozen, cleaned, um, cut, all that sort of stuff, rather than having to travel many weeks to get to your grocery store. But incorporating a variety of colors is really the key when it comes to your plant-based diet. There is no magic food. There's no such a thing as, like, a superfood that's, going to cure everything all at once. And I always let patients know that. Um, It's the key is the variety of the nutrients that you bring into your diet. Protein's unique, though. Protein coming from our lean protein sources, like I mentioned earlier, um, have its own unique feature, which is to help with healing. It's the building block for tissue. And if you're preparing for surgery or even recovering from surgery, protein may be part of your conversations um, with your healthcare team, um, primarily to assist with the healing, the increased um, need of protein the body may be demanding. Um, and there may be a need for you at some time to take a supplement. This is based on your unique circumstances. Talk with your healthcare team before you invite anything into your diet, into your. Um, regular program, Um, vitamins and minerals and supplements and things like that um, in the presence outside of cancer or a treatment looks different than when you are being treated for cancer. And so talking with your healthcare team about any potential interactions is absolutely essential. Please do that. During your treatment, there might be times where you have to modify your diet. That's possible due to side effects. We heard some side effects today um, that are possible. Talk with your team. Talk with your team soon. Don't wait until you feel terrible several days in um, to reach out for support. Um, They could probably give you some suggestions quickly to help resolve them. And the last thing I want to bring up is dehydration. Dehydration oftentimes is not always discussed and can make you feel really crummy, can make you feel nauseated, fatigued, even a little dizzy. And fluids are anything that's at liquid at room temperature, so water, juice, those are great. Um, a general guideline for most people, um, we need between eight and 10 eight ounce classes of fluid a day. So hydration is absolutely important, especially if you're going through a treatment. Hydration may be something that's also part of your discussion. Again, reaching out to your team, do that as soon as possible, as soon as something comes up. They're there for you. They're there to support you. Um, and don't forget, the dietitian is part of that team as well. Sometimes um, a lot of other appointments take up, but your dietician is available. to talk with your team if you have any specific questions about your calorie needs, your protein needs, or your individual fluid needs. Um, I want to thank you for letting me be part of today's presentation. I'm going to pass the line back over to Carolyn.
1: Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. And That was really excellent and very informative, and those are issues that people are always struggling with, so thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Alejandra Spangler. Ms. Spangler is Education and Research Manager, Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, BCAN. And BCAN has been wonderful as a collaborating organization and helping to actually reach out to all of you, and, and many of you are familiar with BCAN. And um, actually, uh, Ms. Spangler is going to describe the, um, the services, the free programs of the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, BCAN, that you can all access. Um, Ms. Stangler, it's my pleasure to join this program with my esteemed colleague, Ms. Stangler.
5: Thank you so much, Carolyn. Uh, It's certainly a pleasure to be on the call, and we thank you so much for this opportunity and for all um, the colleagues that are on the line uh, in regards to this program. Beacon has a lot of different resources available for bladder cancer patients and caregivers, as well as their loved ones, and we wanted to make sure to bring that awareness to you today. One of the biggest programs that we have is our Survivor to Survivor program. Survivor to Survivor is unique in that it's able to connect diagnosed patients and their caregivers with other survivors and caregivers who have gone through their own process of uh, bladder cancer and the journey that they embark on whenever um, the diagnosis comes. And so it really presents a wonderful opportunity to speak with someone who has essentially walked that walk and uh, had the chance to – able to express maybe concerns that you have and speak with someone who has, um, can share their day-to-day life, whether it's after um, a diagnosis or perhaps in regards to a treatment, uh, ranging from chemotherapy, BCG treatments that you've heard about, and as well as bladder removal uh, as that is one of the ways that we can connect you. We also have a different program called Beacon Connection, and this is a support line that's actually staffed by volunteers. For anyone who's affected by bladder cancer, the volunteers actually provide practical information and resources to assist uh, bladder cancer patients and their loved ones. Many times, uh, this may be in the form of um, lend, uh, sending you a handbook. Our bladder cancer newly diagnosed handbook is a wonderful uh, resource uh, that's provided free of charge to any to help the bladder cancer patients learn about their diagnosis and treatment options and so that's one way we can reach you and certainly you can go ahead and take a look at our website at uh, www.bcan.org and you can see that there are several different resources available for uh, you as a patient or the caregiver one thing that we talked about during this call was the clinical trials and beacon is able to provide uh, we have our bladder cancer clinical trials dashboard And in order to explore a little bit more about any information you'd like to have about clinical trials, uh, you can go ahead and visit our website, and that is a great resource to take a look at. Additionally, we have uh, patient insight webinars, which are um, staffed by our nationally recognized bladder cancer experts, and they address important topics that are related to bladder cancer diagnosis, treatment, quality of life, and and any ongoing research that is happening currently. And there are several other resources, such as uh, our Get the Fact Sheets, which are um, sheets that are specific to different topics that are coming from bladder cancer patients from the past that are giving tips um, about each treatment and what that may look like for you as a patient. Lately, we have, uh, lastly, we have our other videos, such as our New Normal, and uh, this is regarding uh, urinary urinary diversions and this talks about our bladder cancer survivors giving a voice about their choice of urinary diversion. If you'd like to have more information about our educational resources or our support groups, or I'm sorry, our support uh, programs, you can go ahead, as we said, uh, and visit www.bcan.org, and you can check out the different beacon resources available for you. Thank you so much, Carolyn, and I'll pass it over to you.
1: Oh, uh, thank you so much, Ms. Dangler. That was really excellent and very informative. And for those for I know many of you on the call are familiar with BCAN, but for those of you who are not, it's really the go to organization and it is actually the only blood cancer organization in the cancer field that exists. So I think it's a wonderful resource for all of you to take advantage of. And I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care and then we're going to take questions. So, so I see some people are starting to prepare their questions, so start to think about your questions. So um ca- cancer care. Um, is a a national organization, and we are staffed by oncology social workers who actually are uh, trained at a master's degree level, and they provide um, counseling services to people um, living with all cancers, including bladder cancer, and we um, also, also offer practical and financial assistance as well. And just to um, talk a little bit about the counseling services, it's really a chance to talk with someone about some of your concerns. We also have a number of telephone support groups, and we have over 120 120- online support groups, so those are particularly, uh, I think, attractive to people who really um, are both internationally as, as well as to people in the United States. It's a very effective way that people find to kind of keep in touch with each other, and there are often many, many people in those groups, and you can kind of post things any time of the day or night, which is really helpful to people as well. Um, they're all facilitated by an oncology social worker so that there's someone moderating the calls as well. Um, We also do these education workshops, of course. Um, This is an example of one of them. We do them on many different topics. And um, we also do have various publications, fact sheets, and, of course, our website. So um, please um, don't do hesitate to contact HINSEC here for any of your particular concerns or needs um, and um, all that information about how to contact us. Um, You can call us at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancer.org. Www.cancer, uh, and actually, um, in terms of our website, um, if anyone wishes to, con- you can actually post a question or, or go to our website and, and actually ask, to talk to one of our social workers, for those of you who um, prefer not to call on the phone but actually prefer our international participants who just have questions and they just want to contact somebody um, at this organization. And now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. So I'm going to ask uh, Crystal to explain to all of you how to queue up the questions and let the questions begin. And I will, at the very end of the call, if we don't take your question, I see there are questions, and I will actually, either way, will explain to all of you how to get your further questions answered. Crystal?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question at this time, please press the star and then the number one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that is star one to ask a question.
1: And we have our first question from one of our online participants. Um, and um, I'm going to address this question to Dr. Uh, Singh. Um What are the new tests for determining who is going to be chemo-resistant or not, who is performing these tests? So Dr. Singh, if you could answer that question in a general way, and then of course we do certainly recommend that you go back to your treating healthcare team, of course, but we're gonna try to give you some information that perhaps would be useful to you um, as you talk to your healthcare team. Dr. Singh?
2: Sure, so um, there are um, CLIA certified some platforms which are approved recently And these tests, the information they give us um, is on the um, profile of the bladder cancer. And there are certain profiles, genomic profiles, which are um, linked to better response than other profiles. I'm trying to answer this in a very generic way. So, um, and the information what you get from this test is taken in, Uh, in some clinical context, and uh, these tests are not at that level where we can use them to uh, upfront and decide and exclude patients from chemotherapy. And so that's why I said they are not there where they can be used in mainstream clinical practice. And... Um I would recommend you can talk to your physician uh, about these tests um, and see if they are uh, how comfortable they are with the information these tests provide. but at the same time, there are now new tests which are coming um, are being investigated in clinical trials which will have more stronger data to support their clinical utility. Um, and uh, and that's where I would like to end my answer, that these tests are still not there yet, but they are available, um, and in some clinical situations, uh, you know, physicians can use them as long as they understand the implications of the results.
1: Well, thank you very much. And, um, Dr. Swice, do you want to add anything to that?
3: No, I think that summarized it pretty well. They're just... Um, you know, we need more data, we need more trials to really show uh, whether or not we can predict with good enough uh, certainty whether, uh, you know, a patient may not respond to chemotherapy. And uh, because you wouldn't want, if you had a test, for instance, that said that one group had a 80% chance of responding and another group had a 20% chance of responding, it's helpful in that it sort of suggests some understanding of the biology behind the tumor. But it's not helpful in that I wouldn't want to tell a patient, even if there's a 20% chance of response, that that you shouldn't get chemotherapy or you shouldn't get uh, any type of therapy for that matter uh, in that context. So they don't have the... the quite enough precision yet to, to use, uh, you know, wide, as you said, in, in a sort of a mainstream um, uh, application. So we're still investigating these in the context of several clinical trials, and I hope that in the future we we, we can get better at this and, and figure out who, um, you know, who's going to benefit the most from not just chemotherapy, but this applies really to all of the new therapies too, immunotherapy, targeted therapy,
1: excellent and, and it's true that in some cancers they there are some tests that will help inform treatment um is are you saying that it's just that that there aren't them they're not as sophisticated here at this point or
3: um, yeah or that the clinical the the sophistication and the test level is is high but in terms of the prediction uh it is not uh, sufficient as as with some other cancers this is where i think the sequencing of tumors is going to is going to pave the way for the future doing uh when we get uh, you know comprehensive genomic sequencing where they're sequencing 300 to 1200 genes um I think some of that is going to help inform in the future our decisions about therapy, but right now it's just not quite there in bladder cancer.
1: So it's a great question. It's probably the Nobel Prize question, and and stay tuned, and um, because always research is conducting, so probably to ask the question a year from now, it might be a, we might have more answers for you. So that's an excellent question. And do ask it of your healthcare care team um, also. That's a great idea, and it's an excellent question. Now, we do have a question for one of some of our uh, participants on, on the telephone. So, um, uh, Crystal, should we take that first telephone question then?
0: Thank you. And our first question comes from Sue O. Your line is open. Um,
6: thank you for taking my question. Um, I have chronic lymphocytitis leukemia, and i've had a i was diagnosed in two thousand and six I didn't need chemo till two thousand and thirteen but um <clears throat> since um I was twelve or thirteen i've had a history of urinary tract infections and um and pylone and for the past since i've had chemotherapy in two thousand and thirteen for the past three years, I've been in the hospital almost every month. being treated in your question? My, my my question is, um, am I more at risk for getting bladder cancer because of my history with pyelonephritis and uh, UTIs?
1: Well, that's an excellent question. Thank you. That's an excellent question. And, Dr. Swice, if you could address this question in a general way. And then we do recommend, sure. of course, going back to your health team who know all about you, but if you could address it just in a general way,
3: yeah, of course. Yeah, it's again, yeah, for in terms of everyone's specific individual circumstance, it's hard to to know for sure. But in general, there is uh, there is an association with an increased risk of bladder cancer for patients with uh, recurrent infections in the bladder. Um, it's hard to quantify how much of a risk that is um certainly in, in general in general i would if you ever develop any blood in the urine hematuria any discomfort anything unusual it would certainly warrant uh, an investigation by a urologist with a cystoscopy um but uh but you know there are there are a lot of even if the risk is increased there are lots of patients with with frequent infections that that never get bladder cancer so it it's it's not that it's uh you know it's not that it's uh, a a very high probability but but it is it does put you at a higher risk than the average uh population risk so that, I'll I'll stop there.
1: So in terms of surveillance, it would be reporting symptoms to help your healthcare team, or is there any?
3: Yes, I wouldn't recommend any, like, routine screening, for instance. That's not been proven yet uh, in the absence of any symptoms at all. But, but uh, but yeah, if any blood in the urine develops, any pain that's unusual, uh, fatigue, weight loss, uh, systemic symptoms like that where you feel like something's out of the ordinary, that may warrant a, a more of an investigation. But there isn't uh, uh, any sort of standard. standard. Standard surveillance protocol that we would recommend um, at this time, where you you go in for uh, a screening in the absence of symptoms, that would not be recommended.
1: That's an excellent question, and and definitely work with your healthcare team. And you certainly sound like you're very proactive about your care. So this is an excellent, um, excellent. Thank you. And we have a question from one of our online participants, and this will be for Doctor Parman, Parman, Doctor Singh. um, at what point would a stage one patient move from being treated by a urologist to being treated by an oncologist? And if you could explain that, that is a question I think people often ask or are con- concerned about.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a very good question, especially uh, the way the research is moving. And as we uh, Dr. Swais and I alluded to, some clinical trials. Um, so stage one uh, cancer. Uh, was traditionally being managed by urologists by giving uh, medicines inside the bladder, and if the patients are not responding, they'll end up having their bladder removed. But in last uh, year or so, there are now multiple clinical trials which have opened, which, in which we are offering systemic agents, which are drugs which are given intravenously in the immunotherapy class of drugs, And so uh, these drugs are administered by oncologists. And so um, usually the oncologist and urologist, they work as a team. And if an institution has opened a clinical trial, then the urologist will then refer the patient to the oncologist to talk about the clinical trial and see if the patient is eligible. Um, But uh, if the patient uh, is a surgical candidate, Um, and they don't have a clinical trial as an option, they will routinely end up having their bladder removed. Uh, But in some instances where the the patient is not a good surgical candidate, they may end up with oncologists to see what options can be explored uh, from oncology point of view. Uh, Some patients, uh, there are some reports of use of radiation also in stage 1 disease. But again, uh, at an early stage of investigation, Um, but an opinion can always be sought. So I usually recommend patients to always ask. Uh, Sometimes a urologist may not know of a clinical trial, so you can always ask, can we see an oncologist to talk about any options where we may not end up having our bladder removed? Um, And so, you know, that's where I'll end my answer.
1: Thank you. Uh, These are really excellent questions, I have to say. Um, Really excellent questions. And um, I believe we have another telephone question as well.
0: Thank you. And our next question comes from Duncan A. Your line is open.
3: Yes, thank you. I was wondering what the determining factors were on when you start BCG after a uh, TUR. Thank you.
1: Thank you for that question. Um, Dr. Swice. can you address that question, please, in a general way?
3: Sure. Um, so BCG is uh, so one of the... De- Probably the one of the most important determining factors is um the the uh the tumor itself and the characteristics of the tumor so uh grade and size and things like that um also it depends on the uh clinical history so uh if patients had uh many recurrent tumors or is this the first time that a small tumor has developed uh their b c g may not be indicated if it's a single instance of a small tumor. Um, but if it's a re- recurrent instances where you know every three four months uh, new tumors are discovered, then BCG would be recommended to prevent the recurrence. And so uh, again, that kind of gets to the mechanism of action of BCG. Again, it's an immunotherapy that stimulates the immune response. So the hope is really uh, because the small tumors will be will be removed by the urologist anyway. But the purpose of the BCG is really to activate an immune response. An immune system has memory, so the immune system can remember abnormal features of cells, and so the idea is to prevent recurrence. And so that's the purpose of BCG in that situation, and it's been very effective in in many patients for, for, for that purpose. Uh, but in some patients that just have a single isolated small lesion, they may not need that BCT, and they just would still require a close follow-up with uh, surveillance cystoscopies and imaging as needed uh, to be, so So not to sort of go away from the healthcare system, but to stay in touch with your urologist and make sure you're following surveillance protocols uh, with, with him or her.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Um, Singh, do you want to add anything to that?
3: No,
2: I think it was summarized well. Okay.
1: And we have another question from one of our online participants, and this will be for Dr. Singh. Um, um, this question is, what genetic testing is being done to determine prognostic and or treatments for advanced bladder cancer? <coughs> what can this testing tell us, what markers are known, and what what need more research? So if you could address this in a general way.
2: it's Again, it's a very good question, and... Um, it's, a, it's where the field is truly moving uh, very rapidly with the publication of and updates of TCGA, uh, which were presented again this year also at um, their biggest meeting in GU cancers uh, in February this year. But we are not at a point where we can use this genomic information um, for our clinical decisions yet. Um, we have some early tests which are approved, uh, as I mentioned before. Um, the, as Dr. Swai so said, the precision or um, of these tests is not there yet. They need more validation uh, to help um, a general oncologists use them um, in day-to-day clinical decisions. Um, people who understand. Um, the relevance of the information through these early tests um, are the ones who are using them in a certain clinical context. Um, and uh, and so we're not there yet that w- there are specific genomic uh, information which we can use for clinical decisions in bladder. That's the short answer. The long answers are there are, like as I said, there are FGF mutations or amplifications against which now there is data that there are drugs which can target that pathway which can um show which are showing good response in advanced stage disease patients and they are being investigated uh, both in early and late stage bladder cancer and um and then we are performing genomic analysis in in our routine practices and we are seeing we would end up seeing uh, certain mutations uh, for which we may have a clinical trial. For example, if we see a, a mutation called as HER2, um, and we have a clinical trial, uh, then the patient can be enrolled on that trial, which is targeting that mutation. Or if we see an RB1 amplification and we have a clinical trial for that, and so it's more um, what information we get from your from patient's tumor. So it's very patient specific. Um, we are not at a point where we can use this information in general for all our patients. Uh, I hope that answers your question.
1: Thank you. And Dr. Swice, do you want to add anything to that? Or?
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree in the preface in that you know, all, a lot, all of this is still in the research phase, but, but really to get involved with some of these trials would be one opportunity to sort of contribute to this advancing the field, and, and that's, again, why I recommended um, uh evaluation with a second opinion and potentially clinical trials whenever possible. But uh, I I think that these genomic alterations, I I think there is a lot of hope and and, and real tangible hope in the near future. I I expect that we're going to see some new uh, drugs targeting specific mutations, uh, two of which uh, Dr. Singh alluded to, I think have a lot of promise. So, uh, I mean, we're talking in the next couple of years, uh, not something that's uh, 10 years from now. So, I think that's going to be exciting. Um, There are people looking at immunotherapy determinants of response. I'm actually one of those people I'm studying to try to understand what uh, sort of determines patients who respond to immunotherapy or not. Some of the common tests that are done in the research setting are um, looking at the number of mutations. So, patients with more Mutations in their tumors it may have a may have a higher chance of responding to immunotherapy. That's because the immune system recognizes mutations, so it may, kind of makes sense if you have more mutations and it's more likely the immune system can detect the cancer. But uh, but again, that's still in the research phase, We're, and it's probably not on its own ever going to be um, sufficient. But it may be incorporated into uh, combinations of biomarkers, as we call them, to sort of determine response and um, And so I think there's a lot of really exciting, cool things going on. And there was a big trial that that studied chemotherapy uh, that is completed in terms of the the patients accrued. It it was uh, patient tumors were basically collected that underwent chemotherapy before surgery. And there's going to be a wealth of information that's going to come from that, again, thanks to the generous contributions of the patients. But we're going to be able to study those tumors, and we're going to be able to link whether or not certain changes actually were present in patients who responded, who didn't respond, and and so I think we're going to learn a lot from that trial. The TCGA, um, Dr. Singh mentioned, was a great example of that. This was a collaborative effort across the country where we were able to collect 412 patient samples um, that are are publications coming still to this day, um, you know, based on the data that's now available for research purposes. So, It starts with generating great ideas, testing them in these these databases that are now available, and then then the final step is really testing them prospectively ahead of time in patient populations uh, to know whether it's really working in real time uh, as a test. And so that's sort of where we're trying to get to as quick as possible.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Well, this has been an extraordinary call. I have to say the questions have been outstanding on the speakers. Our speakers have been terrific. Our participants have been great, and um, so I I really want to thank everybody for for this. And I did say that there are some questions that we still have not answered, so I want to let you all know how to get your questions answered. So, of course, one resource I do want to, uh, again, identify for all of you is the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, just because that is their focus and you have their uh, website and their 800 number. We'll be sending that information to all of you. We send an evaluation at the end of the program, so we'll be sending all the resource information that I we've discussed during the program and given out. Um, also, for any of you who have uh, continued medical questions about your care, I do recommend, of course, that you speak with your health care team because your health care team, of course, know you best of anybody. Um, but some of you do like to search other places. And so the other place I do recommend in addition to uh, BCAN is the National Cancer Institute. Um, they have an 800 number, 1-800-422-6237. And they also have a website, www.cancer.gov, And that website has a live chat feature, which is really very helpful to people from all over the world and the U.S. as well, because um, you can post your question and one of their information specialists will get you the information and really provide you with information um, that you can then take back to your treating health care team. I think for many of you on the call today who've asked questions, and those of you who've been listening, our hope is that the information you receive allows you to feel more confident in asking questions of your health care team And also, we also hope that you feel like you can form your questions because you've learned a bit from the call today. That's what you've been telling us in your evaluations, and so you'll keep us posted as to how this works for you. Um, And um, some of the questions that you, of course, ask today um, are really great questions to bring back to your treating healthcare team. Now, this is part one of a two-part series. So part two is on March 21st. Um, It's also on a Wednesday at the same time so 1.30 to p.m. Eastern Time, and the title is For Caregivers, Practical Tips to Cope with Your Loved One's Bladder Cancer, and many of you have signed up for that, but in case you haven't, just so you know about that. And we also have a program coming up on April 16th on Preventing Chemotherapy-Induced Nausea and Vomiting, and that's a general program. It's on Monday, April 16th, again, that same time period, and um, for those of you who might be interested, again, you'll be getting all this information um, at the conclusion of the program when we send you the evaluation form that will be sent to all these different resources. I want to thank all of you for your participation today. And as we conclude the call, I do not want anyone to think that you're alone in coping with bladder cancer or in coping with cancer in general. I want you to know that you're now part of a community of support of lots of organizations that can help you and people out there that are, are eager to help you, including your health care team. And please do take advantage of those resources. And, again, I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all for your participation.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.